You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of creating one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. The Right Process is brought to you by the Writer's Program at UCLA Extension, helping you reach your writing goals one page at a time. Enroll now at uclaextension.edu. Hello, I'm Laurel Olstein, the playwright of They Promised Her the Moon, which premiered in Off-Broadway in spring of 2017 and had a workshop at the Old Globe Theater in San Diego in January of 2018. Laurel Olstein is an award-winning writer, director, and teacher. She regularly works on play development and production in Los Angeles, and her work has been featured in festivals from New York to Singapore. Her play, They Promised Her the Moon, explores NASA in 1960, the year of The Right Stuff and Mercury 7, was also the year of a little-known story, a group of American female astronauts preparing in mind and spirit to give their lives for the opportunity to go into space, but never had the chance. They Promised Her the Moon is based on the true story of Geraldine Jerry Cobb, an accomplished pilot and the first woman to be tested for spaceflight, who, for a short time, thought she would be the first woman astronaut. The play They Promised Her the Moon has been an unusual voyage for me, because very often I had written um, dark comedies that are based somewhat autobiographically, but this play found me. This story found me. I was actually uh, researching a short story I was writing about female astronauts. I was just writing a short story and realized I didn't know enough about them. So I googled first American female astronaut, absolutely assuming it would be Sally Ride. And Jerry Cobb's name came up, born in 1931. And I'm thinking, who is that? I couldn't believe I didn't know. I couldn't believe that I'd never heard of the Mercury 13 women who were tested to be astronauts in 1960, same time as the Mercury 7 guys, and none of my friends had heard of it. So I was very, I was really surprised, and I kept thinking, someone must have written about this. This is ridiculous. And the more I researched it, the more I realized there were books written about the Mercury 13, but they were all pretty much academic books and had enormous number of names and stories in there, so it wasn't dramatically written. And I just focused on Jerry Cobb, and I found her story difficult and wonderful and sad and inspirational, and I thought, I've got to write this. So after I started reading all of these books, and there were a lot of them, (laughs) that many said many of the same things. But what I did discover, I discovered some books that Jerry herself had written, autobiographies, that she self-published. And that was fascinating. And a lot of the characters that I started realizing that I wanted to include in her story, who, like who were the characters, because there were so many people. I was very attracted to the idea of these tests that she went through. And one test in particular was the isolation tank, which Jerry uh, survived through longer than any of the men. Jerry lasted nine hours and 50 minutes. And Wally Funk, who is one of the Mercury 13, she was a youngster. She's only 83, I think now. And she got herself tested after and she went longer. Actually, I talked to her and she was so fabulous and told me about the experience uh, in detail about being in the tank, which was invaluable too. And it 
it just hit me. And I think that's what happens with me with plays, with my plays. I get a very strong image, and as soon as I can, it's a structure that, that just makes sense to me. And all of a sudden it made sense that I could have it all in the tank, and then I could go anywhere. Because telling a biography of someone is just, first of all, it could be boring. It could just be, and then this happened, this happened, this happened. So how do you tell it in a theatrical world? And that just went poof, oh. It's in the isolation tank. So as soon as I figured that out, then it was fun. Then it was play. Then it was like, okay, well, how do I, what stories do I want to tell? I could tell them in any order. I could just figure out who who was on the outside of the tank and, and how the characters would come inside the tank to, you know, uh, be flashbacks or hallucinations um, somewhere in between. And there was a fellowship at the University of Oklahoma, and the University of Oklahoma is in Norman, Oklahoma, which is where Jerry grew up. And I thought, I should apply for this, and they thought that too. So they brought me out to Oklahoma for a semester, and that was very eye-opening and fantastic way to write the first draft because, first of all, I was surrounded by the accent (laughs) which was incredible, and the landscape, and planes, and people who knew her, and people who knew her family. It was an unbelievable gift. The The funny part, though, was, of course, that I had all these students, and I could use as many as I wanted. In fact, they encouraged that in university, so I ended up with like 22 characters, which doesn't go over well professionally. <laughs> but the play got to expand, and relationships grew, and they did an absolutely beautiful production of it in, at the University of Oklahoma. It was exploring the story, and I saw that it could work. I saw that the whole idea of being in the tank could work. It was beautifully collaborative, and that's what I love about theater. And I went in there with a rough first draft. So it's not like I didn't have anything or just an idea. I definitely had a first draft. In fact, they read it and accepted it at that level. They had done these fellowships before and actually had asked for much more completed plays before, but they loved the idea of this play so much and that it made so much sense in that in their world. So I had a first draft and it was great because it made me, it was a deadline, which everyone believes in deadlines. I do. I have to, to finish something. So there was this first draft that was a messy first draft, and we did a reading um, with the students uh, that uh, one of the professors cast it before I even got there. And we did a reading, and I'd go away and write every day. And I'd bring new scenes, and I'd hear the scenes, and I'd rewrite. I'd rewrite in the room sometimes. I'd ask them to improvise some things if I felt like it would be fun to see, you know, what could come of something because it's a very visual play too so starting to just imagine all these people what would that be if uh, it's it it gets crowded in your head (laughs) and so it's really nice to project it out to real people on the stage Um, it's just again it's such a gift I had a wonderful professor who was the director I also had a, a professor who acted as a dramaturg and she was just fantastic because she did research for me that was invaluable. And what a dramaturg does, there's a lot of different ways a dramaturg does their job, but they are researchers for writers to help you, especially if you're doing something historical, that they will help you find material or um, 
um, the accuracy of even costumes and and sets, and they can help it and language. And it was it, so invaluable to have somebody doing that work while I was doing the writing work. And uh, a dramaturg also in other productions, uh, if it's uh, a fictional work will help you with structure as well. So the dramaturg is sort of, in a way, thinking of the dramaturg, um, I always think of them as sort of your first audience. So they'll say, if this works, if this, try this. I mean, they'll help you. Um, and it's a conversation with just you. So it's the director usually is not in that conversation, which is important because they're thinking of the actors and they're thinking of of, of the, the world of the play on the stage where you're st- the dramaturg and, and the writer are on the page still. So this play, as I was writing it, I don't know if it, it might have been a little different than some plays I, I write just because I had so much information to work from and it wasn't all in my head. <laughs> so that makes it very different. So actually, with that, I had to, at some point, put away all my research so that I could write it. And that was something that I really had to step away from. Otherwise, I was just engulfed by the truth. And and that doesn't help you dramatically often, that you're going to have to bend the truth to make it work. I talk to myself while I write. I become all the characters. My husband always kids me that I have to clear a block, a whole block, so I can start writing because he, I'm always, are you are you leaving? Are you going home? Are you going to work? Because I'm going to write. But that's why we built a place in the back for me to write so no one had to leave the house except me. I also write very well in coffee shops, though. I like white noise. It's, it is really helpful in a lot of ways. I'll take one scene at a time. It's it's always very visual for me as well because it's theater. But even when I write prose, I feel like I imagine it. Uh, it's a, a movie in my head. I always tell my students that when people say, oh, I couldn't write, I was just thinking all week. I could. But that's writing. That's big, important writing time. And I forget to tell myself that. But sometimes you're just walking the dog and that's the best writing time and you come back and the scene is there. It's like already done because you went through it in your head. And I do that often. I actually write, I feel like, in traffic in my head <laughs> quite a lot. It is in fits and starts. That's I, I need deadlines. I think I wouldn't finish a play if I didn't have a deadline. Um, and this one kept having deadlines, sometimes self-imposed. Like I would schedule a reading when I knew, okay, I've got to get to a draft. I just schedule a reading, sometimes just in my living room. But then I knew actors were coming over, so I had to have something. Workshops are amazing, too, which I had the just the honor to be part of this Old Globe New Works Festival just um, recently. And that was an unbelievable gift. So it was five days with five, with brilliant actors and a, a new director who I hadn't worked with. Who So fresh eyes. Um, and we had, you know, six-hour rehearsals every day and then a reading at the end in front of our audience. And it was uh, like it gave the play a whole new shine. Uh, I've really deepened some of the characters it was, it's just such, again, it's a gift. I keep saying that, but it really is. The collaborative work is everything in theater. 
the thing that's wonderful in workshopping and then having an audience, because the audience is the, the final piece, and they are, and I watch an audience more than the play at that point. Uh, and I know the first production that was at the University of Oklahoma was in the round, so it was even great audience watching. And I could feel the audience. You can feel the audience when their mind is not there. And you can feel when they are so riveted that, you know, a pin can drop. And you can feel when they want more. It's like they tell you. And it's not one person's comment. It's not getting comments after a reading because I think those are sometimes not helpful because people want to hear themselves talk sometimes. And it's also an immediate reaction that they're trying to verbalize something that maybe they can't quite verbalize. But watching an audience, feeling an audience, and also myself as audience, I know when I'm bored. If I'm bored, you know, there's something in that scene that is not working or it's not honest or I'm ending too soon or it's going too long or that character just, that doesn't sound right in that character's voice. That's also a wonderful gift with actors because I have, I am all the actors. I am all the characters. And then I give it to them. And then each one of these actors, to them, they are the star. So they're a character. It's their play. So they get to say, you know, my character wouldn't do that. And sometimes you could go, oh, well, maybe they would. Or I think they would. But many times they're, I mean, actors are very smart and intuitive and they they discover the character in a whole other way and the play in a whole other way from totally from that character's point of view. So you get, like in, in my play where I have six actors, you get six people who have very distinct ideas of the play from their point of view, which is just invaluable. There was one character in this play that I have struggled with, which, I mean, I've struggled with all of them at some point or another, but more than others because uh, Dr. Randy Loveless, who was a real guy, who was a scientist, he's the Mercury 7 guy, he's, uh, but he never, he never wrote about himself, and it's very hard to make him dramatic, and I kept trying to find the truth of him, and it was hard, and I was afraid to make him up because he was this real guy, and he was an amazing man, what he did. I don't know who he was, really. I found out one bit of information about him, that his son's two teenage boys died of polio, and I thought, okay, that's something that says a lot about him. And, um, and I, that, the monologue that came out of that that I wrote for him just opened up that character for me. And the, the actor, we were doing a workshop in New York at that time, actually, and that was um, in 2016, before the New York production. And before then, that he was just sort of a placeholder, I felt like, that character. And, and I gave him that monologue. In the middle of the rehearsal, I said, I, and it changed who he was for him. The character deepened immediately, even though these other lines weren't even rewritten. But now that he had that monologue, um, it was a, it was a full character. And then this past workshop that I had in the Old Globe, I deepened that character even more. The relationship between him and Jackie Cochran, I elaborated on those uh, on them very much. Because it's interesting, because Jackie Cochran, who is a fascinating character, who 
I actually feel like I may end up writing a play about her because I, she is unbelievable and complex and terrifying and wonderful and funny and um, I was afraid to to elaborate too much on her character because I thought it would overshadow Jerry, which is was another like juggling act because Jerry doesn't speak <laughs> very much and Jackie never stops. But I realized that I was holding her back and that wasn't helpful. I, I that I needed that the play really really evolved to being about Jackie and Jerry. It's about these two women. Jackie Cochran uh, was uh, a world record holding pilot uh, and she uh, was a contemporary of Amelia Earhart and she was a bombshell too. She was like Mae West of the skies is how I think of her because she did everything and she broke records. She was best friends with Jaeger. She she was the first woman to break the sound barrier. Um, she uh, also had her own cosmetics company. She was married to one of the richest men in the world, which was an interesting thing for her, and very calculated. So she could do what she wanted. Um, she grew up poor. Uh, she also made up her entire uh, backstory. and. That's something that's just so fascinating to me because it made a better story. And she paid her real parents to tell the press that they were her foster parents. So no one knew her real story till after she died. I mean, she is just wonderful and incredibly complicated woman. But she was determined to be in charge of something. She wanted to go to space. She wanted to do everything. And But by the time the space... Um, that NASA was looking at this uh, testing women for space, which actually she and her husband were supporting, she was too old, which she didn't handle that well. So she was also very jealous of young women. She was the type of woman, and there are a lot of women like this, unfortunately, I guess, who, uh, who like to be the only woman in the room. And they're not particularly helpful to young women coming up if they're in charge, if they're b below them. But Jackie was a tough cookie. So you have little Jerry Cobb, who's a Oklahoma girl with a blonde ponytail who looked 12 years old up until she was 40. And, you know, naive in, in that way. She thought, yeah, she passed all the tests. She should go. There was no, she didn't get it. I don't think until it all fell apart that that could even happen. Jerry's life was uh, dramatically changed from this experience. And she, she was convinced that she was going to be the first woman in space. Life magazine did a cover story on her with pictures calling her the first lady astronaut. Hard to not feel that that's true. And then it just stopped, which was pretty devastating to her. Um, and she went through a lot. But what she ended up doing was uh, becoming a bush pilot in the Amazon for like 40 years or more. She's still alive somewhere, I think in Texas. But she doesn't really want to be found, which is understandable. Uh, I read quite a lot about her time in the Amazon. And it was hard. It was difficult. It was she... Um, she seemed to be a bit delusional, grandized things that she was doing. Uh, there was a reporter in 1983 who went out to the Amazon to, 
to interview her because she thought this is magnificent. And also Jerry was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize because of the things that she said she was doing out there, which were also, I think, spoke about her, her father was talking up in Oklahoma and this congressman in Oklahoma was, had nominated her. And um, this w- woman, this young journalist, wanted to meet her, was so uh, in, you know, enthused about her life and what she'd done and what she was doing, and went out into the Amazon and sort of discovered it wasn't quite what she thought, and wrote this beautiful article about, I mean, beautiful, sad article called The Discarded Astronaut. That just breaks your heart right there. And I interviewed her, the uh, journalist, so she'd lived there with Jack, with Jerry for a, a few weeks. And I thought, that is a different play. It's not what I want to say. I want to tell the story of the Mercury 13. I want to tell the story of these incredible women, of this incredible woman who came from someone who, who had a speech impediment and little Oklahoma girl to a world record-holding pilot to being called the first lady astronaut, being ballsy enough to go to the Congress and say, I deserve this, and still then go to the Amazon and fly as a bush pilot. I just think she's remarkable, and I wanted to leave it with that. So that was a challenge to how do I end it but be honest. And uh, I started researching where could I end it. I did want to get her to the Amazon. But where do I end the play? How do I end? What's that note? How do I say it without saying it on the nose that she's a, if she hadn't done what she'd done, you know, Sally Ride wouldn't have. Although it took 20 more years for a woman to go to space, which is just unbelievable. So I decided to put a, 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 the end of it in the 80s, in 1983 or 1982, um, when uh, Jackie Cochran died and just before Sally Ride went up and sh- Jerry was in the Amazon and I started researching that time and there actually was a lunar eclipse at that time and I thought, oh, that's perfect. That's the day that I'll write that moment to give her, sort of put her on the moon for a minute at the end. This play has had a lot of lives, as many plays do. They don't just go straight anywhere. <laughs> they they stop and start, and people have to fall in love with it and try and raise some money for it. And Just to even do a workshop takes money, definitely, if you do it in New York particularly because it's all union. And you want it to be. You want to pay the actors because it's, they're doing work, I mean, invaluable work. So, um, like I've said, I had a lot of readings, a lot of workshops. I had this wonderful production at the university. And then, I mean, I did other things in these 10 years <laughs> and wrote other plays and put it away and sort of thought, well, the university production was great. But I knew I actually had some interest after the university production of other universities wanting to do it. But it had like 22 characters. That's why they wanted to do it. And I thought, I really would like to see if I could make it a doable uh, professional play and that would mean how do you do it with less actors so I worked on a draft and made it so that um, six actors could do it four of them playing many characters and um, 
I worked very. Uh, I was working with um, a wonderful woman director, Valentina Fratti, who has a, in New York, who has a, a company called Miranda Theater Company, and she does new works, readings. They they used to have their own space, and they don't now. So they were they were sort of taking a pause too. New York was very expensive to keep a theater going. But she had done readings of my plays, and she really loved this play. And we kept thinking, let's do something. We're going to do it. And I, f- I, her love for it really brought it up there because um, she's in New York, and she has this circle of people. And so what we had a workshop in New York, which was lovely with incredible actors, invited people. We tried to you know to raise money for the next level, and then sort of didn't get enough money and then a year later it sort of went away again and then we had a workshop um, and a reading that was very successful and everybody was excited and people did give money and it was enough for the company to produce it in this off-Broadway showcase production. The, The challenge about plays and this is just the American theater which is a challenge is there's a there's a big push to get world premieres. And then getting second and third productions are really hard, which is such a shame because the play just gets better. But I'm sure there's money and there's all the you know bells and whistles and the world premiere. So uh, the New York production was great. And there was something in me that thought, OK, that was wonderful. That was great. And my agent was thinking, let's get it published. You know go to Sam French and then it'll get done in maybe regionals or schools or that would be great but then there was interest actually the old globe was interested because and that was again not accidental an actress who was in the reading in New York sent the script or actually had sent a a blast saying she was doing it and the old globe said I want to read that had nothing to do with me Right, and they read it and said, "We want to hear this in our New Works Festival." Okay, so now it and the Old Globe, bless their hearts, um, they're very interested in second and third productions because they see that the play does get better. When I started writing this play, I absolutely realized that it was that it hit a chord in me about fairness, and I think that as the years have gone by since I discovered the story, it just becomes more and more relevant in this time. And when these readings have happened and productions, people react to it differently now. I mean, it just, it seems so current. It's amazing to me. It doesn't seem dated in any way. It doesn't seem like, oh, there's an old historical play about, you know, oh, those days. No. And it's terrifying that it doesn't in, in many ways. So I think often historical plays can speak to us in, in the time, in our time, better in some ways than just repeating what's on the news on stage or something that we look at history and think, oh, my God, we're playing, we're doing that still. And I think this play really does that. And I think that this is a time that particularly right now, that it's very relevant. This is the opening scene from They Promised Her the Moon. In the darkness, the sounds of an Oklahoma cornfield on a summer night, wind brushing through the stalks, 
crickets chattering, the sound of breathing. Light softly up on Jerry Cobb. Hard to tell how old she is, with her thin frame and blonde hair pulled back into a tight ponytail. She could be 12 or 40. She speaks. I'm running as fast as I can. Through the cornfield, the stalks taller than me. Ten feet, maybe. Scratching my arms and face, I don't care. I have a good tailwind. And then, in this dream, I jump and fly over the field, zoom past our house with Mother standing in the back porch searching for me. Of course, she doesn't look up. I fly over the barn, the cows, school, church, Lake Thunderbird, and fields and mountains and oceans. I see the curvature of the earth. The moon rises out of the sea. Hear myself breathing. Same air that angels breathe. And I disappear. I'm not lost. I just don't wish to be found. The first time, even before we reached 300 feet, I knew that the sky would be my home. You knew it too. I tumbled out of that airplane with the stars in my eyes. Dad, I left my heart up there. Blackout. Silence. In the dark, a voice over a microphone is heard. Jerry? Lights up on Dr. Lovelace's lab. Lovelace is at a console speaking into a microphone. Jerry, we're about to begin. Are you ready? The echoey sounds from inside an isolation tank. Water. Intense stillness. A soft light reveals Jerry Cobb now floating in that tank. She's 29 years old. I am. Comfortable? It's like flying. I can, can't feel the water. It's the same as your body temperature. So is the air. Weightless. As close as we can get to simulating space. Just where I want to be, sir. Suspended in light-proof, sound-proof, vibration-proof room. Yes, sir. You're the first woman to be tested in the isolation tank, Jerry. And I thank you, sir. We're monitoring you at all times and watching with an infrared camera so you won't drown. I'm not worried. I'm a good swimmer, sir. Now, Jerry, as I told you, you might experience visions or voices. Probably will. Everyone else has, even John Glenn. Extreme sensory isolation can produce periods of high levels of anxiety and hallucinations. There are sounds of a classroom of unruly children. Jerry does not react. So if and when you are ready to come out, just say the word. All you have to do is speak. The Right Process is produced by me, Charlie Jensen, at the UCLA Extension Studio. Audio support and editing were provided by Jamie Moss, Eileen Keegan, and Hannah Sutherland. For more information on the Writers Program, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.